You're suffering? Let's start out with the truth. He chose you. Life ain't going the way you wanted? Let me remind you, he chose you. Your health is not what you hoped for? He chose you. How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. My name is Hannah Seymour. I am your co-host with the one and only my father. The paterfamilias. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Easley. It's great to see you, young lady. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to see yeah, you. Fun to get back in studio and do some recording. Yeah, so we are starting today a brand new series in First Peter. You chose First Peter as a book to walk through in a Bible study here in Nashville. So most of the recordings that we'll be listening to throughout this series were actually done in the Dave Ramsey Conference Center. And the Ramsey Solutions team was so kind to us to open their doors and allow us to meet in their space and have tons of people come on a Tuesday night and walk through the book of First Peter. But before we jump into that, why First Peter? Why did you choose this book? Well, number one, the subject matter to me is very personal. It's very important. Is that how do we handle suffering as Christians? Now, Peter's message specifically is about suffering for the cause of Christ. Hmm. So as we go through the series, we'll talk a lot about that. We can't always apply one-to-one suffering because I'm a Christian. I'm suffering unfairly or unjustly. Uh, But secondly, we think about Pauline theology. There's lots of letters, 13 letters from the Apostle Paul. We have a lot of information from Luke and Luke and Acts. These two small letters from the Apostle Peter, who is endearing, uh, who was a leader of the first church, and yet I don't think many churches tackle these two books. And so I thought it'd be fun in a Bible study to go in a little more depth than you often can in a, in a sermon series where you're sometimes limited by time. Hmm. So as you were teaching these live in Nashville, I'm assuming people were coming up to you afterwards or shooting you an email saying, hey, this really spoke to me. Are there two, three quick stories or pieces of feedback that um, just stick out to you, that how First Peter resonated in folks' lives and in the context that they're living? I learned years ago, I think in Bell Curves, we've talked about this before, and uh, along that Bell Curve, it resonates differently with different people. Those who have a problem marriage or a problem child or those who have a missionary friend, someone who lives in an area where it's very dangerous to be a believer in Mm -hmm. Christ. Uh, There's obvious a connection there. The other part of the book that I think uh, people tend to forget that Peter's denials always stand out as these, you know, terrible things when he denies Christ Mm -hmm. three times. And then what's called the restoration of Peter in the gospel of John uh, and so as the book unfolds, keeping that in the background has huh. been interesting. And uh, ends up key verses, uh, most recently, about I cast all my cares upon you, the little mm. chorus that people know, mm-hmm. uh, to think about in this suffering context that's temporary. But he cares, yeah. and he knows. And people need to be reminded of that. It, it's pretty interesting how you can just pause on that in a teaching where you talk about he knows what you're going through. He knows about your marriage, your infertility, your finances, your teenage son or daughter that's breaking your heart. Mm -hmm. And you just reiterate, he knows, he knows, he cares. And people need reminding. 
that yeah. God's not distant and we're not left on our own to do this. So as with any book of the Bible, my friend, Dr. Charlie Boyd said, you got to teach something <laughs> <laughs> and it is God's word and it's all profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction and training in righteousness. So as we're marching through first Peter, I believe there are 15 episodes that will just be straight teaching. And then we're also going to fold in some special edition interviews. We're pulling in some folks into the studio who dad, you have watched them suffer, but suffer well, clinging on to the living hope that is in Christ, living courageously, living faithfully amidst some really hard circumstances. And, you know, we need these kind of heroes. Um, I, we can make too much of people, but there are certain folks that just navigate suffering and, uh, and difficulty better than some of us. Some of, and it seems in my observation, people either get really bitter and withdrawn, isolated. They may even be combative, but the folks we're going to talk to are otherworldly mm-hmm. in the way they deal with suffering. And, and it seems like I often pray, God, give these folks a reprieve, for goodness sakes. They go through so much. And it's not just a comparison. When people tell me they're suffering and they they said, I hurt my back and I thought about you all weekend. Hmm. And I say, well, number one, there's no competition (laughs) and there's no comparison. Your pain is your pain. That's right. And that helps people mitigate, uh, okay, if if it's this distraction where I cannot function, Mm-hmm. Well, the folks we're going to have in studio and go visit are just remarkable in the way. And, and what you see, and you know these folks well, Hannah, what you see is the people around them are blown away yeah. by the way they navigate it. And as you and I know, you can't do this apart from Christ. You mm-hmm. cannot do this in the flesh. So we'll have, uh, I, I can't say it'll be fun, but it'll be <laughs> rich. It'll be rich stuff yeah. uh, as we hear from these folks. Yeah. Well, as a reminder, we're just coming off the heels of our What Now series. We utilized some teaching from your mentor dad, Prof. Howard Hendricks. He gave four lectures on the idea of aging. What does the Bible say about aging? What does that look like? How has our American system of retirement kind of sabotaged, perhaps, what God intended for us in our latter years, um, got such fun feedback from folks who listened to it who would say, man, that series came at just the perfect time for my wife and I, or as a 25-year-old, that's really helping me think ahead and think about what do I want my life to look like when I'm in my 60s, 70s, 80s. So if you haven't listened to it, can't encourage you enough to go back and listen to that series. I would add two things, Hannah. If folks could share those links. They've got friends, people that perhaps don't listen to a podcast or haven't ever used SoundCloud, and those are both free, easy to access. You're right now listening through one of these vehicles. And if you could share those links with friends, say, hey, I found this series to be beneficial. And secondly, also, if you've not signed up for our email, we'd appreciate that. We'd like to keep a record of who's actually following us and listening to us. And you can also share that link with your friends as well. Be a great help to us as we send out information about new broadcasts and when we occasionally send out a blog. Well, without further ado, let's jump into 1 Peter chapter 1. E.F. Scott called it one of the most beautiful writings in the New Testament. William Barclay characterized it as one of the easiest letters in the New Testament to read, for it has never lost its winsome appeal. Edward Selwyn called it a microcosm of the Christian faith and duty. The letter of 1 Peter really primarily is 
if you are persecuted for the sake of Christ, how do you endure suffering? Now, very few of us in this room will ever be persecuted for Christ's sake. We can talk about the persecuted church around the world, but most of us in America, in, in Middle Tennessee, in areas that are fairly uh, fine with churches, we're not going to experience much persecution. That could change in the coming decade. But for the most part, this is precisely applied to suffering believers who are being persecuted for Christ's sake. Now, when we talk about Bible study, there's one interpretation of a passage, but there are many applications of that passage. So the one interpretation of 1 Peter is written to people suffering for the sake of Christ. Can we step back and apply that to as you and I suffer, generically? Yes, but we have to do it carefully. Because not all of our suffering is for the sake of Christ. Some of our suffering is self-inflicted, stuff we do, you know, we're stupid about. Uh, But we can still learn how we face that suffering and how we go through life. Sometimes suffering has no explanation. Uh, In 1 Peter 5.12, he'll sum it up saying, stand firm. And so this whole book is cast along this. You're going to suffer. Bad things are going to happen to you. You might even suffer for Christ's sake. Uh, Can you stand firm in that? Now, we don't know the precise date of the letter, but we do know enough from the content. There was a hostile environment for the believers that Peter is writing. Uh, Tradition holds that Peter was a martyr. We're not precisely sure of the date, but we can put some things together. He was martyred under Nero. Nero dies in A.D. 68. So you do the math, it's got to be sometime before A.D. 68 when Peter is writing the two letters that we have in our New Testament. The letter doesn't talk about martyrdom, which is interesting in the notion of, we have this picture, if you know a little bit of Roman history, Nero was a megalomaniac. Nero was the one that would impale Christians on these uh, rods and pour oil on them and burn them with fire as you came into Roman provinces to warn people about what his empire was like. He was a horrific guy. And so we, we think about Nero and Peter being martyred under Nero's reign, but we can't connect those two closely in time. We just don't have enough historical information, much less anything in our text. The letter probably, and a lot of writers will talk about a gathering storm. That when Peter's writing these, perhaps there's a gathering storm of persecution that's happening to the believer, and therefore, let's just say a few years later, of course, he's going to be martyred, so they could have felt that trend. Now what happens in Judaism and Christianity is when the Jews came to know Christ, it was all fine. But when the Gentiles start embracing Christ, Jews, rightly so, are going, wait a minute. Uh, How much Judaism do they have to know and have before they can embrace the Jewish Messiah? Great question. That's what the book of Acts is about, this transition from Jew to Gentile, from the nation of Israel to the world, and this whole transition period happening in the book of Acts. And so the letter of Peter is integrating from a very Jewish lens, probably giving us hints that Gentiles were coming to Christ, they're believing in this Messiah, and this is causing a problem not only with the Jews, but with Rome. Because Rome is the occupier, and as these provinces we're going to read in a second are being impacted by this hostility, what do you do if you're the government? You want to keep order. You want to control it. Right now, uh, gun violence and gun control lobbyists and gun rights people, I mean, they couldn't be more at each other, right? What's the government's role? 
to try to control it. How well does that work? Not very well. It never does. And so it's illustrative of the first century as well as today. So what's going to happen? Rome's going to begin persecuting. I hope that doesn't happen in our country, but Rome's going to persecute these factions to get them in line. And of course the Christian the group is a low-hanging fruit. They're not as organized and as robust as other groups. And so that's probably the backdrop of the letter of First Peter. It's not implausible, as I mentioned earlier, that you and I could face persecution. I'm not an optimist when it comes to all things theological. I don't want to be Eeyore theologically, but I don't want to be wise. I want to enjoy the stuff of life as the author of Ecclesiastes enjoins us to, but I also want to be wise as serpent and gentle as a dove. That bad things could happen to us and our children and grandchildren, and not to be surprised if those things occur. Well, Peter's letter, as brief as it is, has these wide, expansive themes that are astonishing. Uh, let me give you just a sampling. I, Howard Marshall, puts out nine key theology points. I'm just going to give you five. I've kind of reworded them to make them a little easier to retain. The first one is the letter is chock full of the Trinity. It's an odd subject when you think about it. As a reader of the Bible, it's like this Trinity thing. You know, Even today, it's sort of theology non grata. I mean, people don't like to talk about a Trinitarian Godhead. And yet Peter's going to hit it right out of the gate in the first chapter over and over and over and through the book about the Trinitarian Godhead. I would argue that there's no salvation apart from a Trinitarian Godhead. And Peter will begin his book with very clear references to the Trinity in the sense that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and how that works in our salvation is a beautiful picture for such a brief letter. Secondly, that salvation is God's doing. Salvation is God's doing. Christians are sinners who lived apart from God. We lived in darkness. We were selfish. We were selfish in our sinfulness. Even if we were young, we were depraved. And yet it is God's work that both saves us and protects us. And I think the American Christian forgets this. We had some part, we walked out, we prayed the prayer, we did our part, we're we're obedient, we're doing our thing. Yes, that's important that we respond by faithful obedience, but he was the first cause in your salvation. You and I deserve nothing. He was the first cause in your salvation. If you don't know Christ, he is the first cause who will pull you to him. It's not how smart you are, It's not what you think of. It's not how well-read you might be, your conclusions about theology. Salvation is God's doing. It's his doing, not ours. Third, the Old Testament is prominent in this little book. And again, it strikes the casual reader. We don't think of Peter as being this heavyweight theologian. We think of Paul being the doctrinaire theologian. But Peter was a Jew. He was a good Jew. He was raised with Judaism as his backdrop. He's a fisherman when Jesus comes on the scene. He's got a small fishing company. And so when Christ interrupts his life, he's going to tell the story as a Jew. But here's the twist. The Old Testament is actually a Christian book. We don't think of it in those terms. But from Peter's conversion, what we're going to see, and the way he writes about it, and the way he references so many Old Testament passages, we're going to scratch our angle. Wait, this is applied to the believer now, again, we have an improper view of the Old Testament. These, these uh, prophets did not know what you know. Now, they know some things that we don't appreciate or we don't remember or we don't understand fully, but they didn't understand the salvation that you and I have tasted. 
because they were waiting for this Messiah. They were waiting for grace. They were waiting for a permanent dwelling of the Spirit. And so in some ways we have so much more uh, information than they did. still doesn't convince people. But it's an Old Testament book that really is a Christian book. Fourth, Peter's going to write a lot about Christian obedience. I was having um, lunch with a physician friend of mine the other day, and we were talking about the differential between those who believe things and those who obey what they believe. It's a big difference. You can say you believe something, but if you don't obey it, it's out of sync. It's like when you tell your kids, do as I do, not as I say. Do as I say, not as I do. We want them to behave a certain way, but we're not willing to do what we've asked them to do. And that's not unlike a believer who says, I believe something, but I don't really follow it. Peter will write about conduct. He'll call us to be a holy people set apart. And fifth, suffering is the dominant theme of the book. And I would put the amendment Christian suffering. How do we suffer as believers, whether it's suffering for Christ's sake or suffering in our lot, suffering in our parenting, our grandparenting, suffering in health issues, we'll apply it lots of ways. Before we look at the first one verse really tonight, I'm going to get your toe in the water. I want you to turn to 1 Peter 3.18 for a moment. And I want to show you a sample of one verse that can be expanded for a lot of material. 1 Peter 3.18. 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This one verse has an an enormous scope of theology. Christ also died for sins once for all. The sufficiency of Christ's death, the uniqueness of his death. Remember when the author of Hebrews talks about the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. The priest who offers sacrifice every day can never take away sin, but Christ once for all has accomplished that. And again, if you were a Jew in the Old Testament system, if you saw the temple complex in its heyday, you would see animals brought in through a ritual process, through a sheep gate. They would be sheared. They would be be dressed a certain way before they're trussed and bled and then gutted and the entrails removed and the skin in certain cases removed, roasted with fire, a morning and evening offering, grain offerings, first fruit, guilt offerings, it was a big industry. We think about a little sacrifice on a, on a fire. This was an ongoing industry without running water. Any of you field dressed a deer, you know how messy this business can be. And for them to come to the conclusion that Christ died once for all, the sacrificial system was done, signed, sealed, delivered. All those priests are out of work. All those Levites, all those wood haulers, all those water haulers, all those young boys who had to learn to wear ephods and dress an animal and burn it and deal with the ashes and the remnants, it's all over. The whole system's gone because of what Christ accomplished, the uniqueness of his work. The second phrase, the just for the unjust. The perfect one died for the unjust. It wasn't just a good person who died for a bad person. It was a perfect person who died for evil people. This is what we call substitutionary atonement in big words. He died in our place on our behalf instead of us. In our place on our behalf instead of us. I repeat that for myself as much as anybody else. He died in our place on our behalf instead of us. That's what it means to have substitutionary atonement because you and I deserve hell and unless he died in our place on our behalf instead of us, we have no hope. 
Third point from this verse, so that he might bring us to God. In that one little sentence, he's saying, you have no relationship with God. You cannot relate to God. You're incapable of even talking to God. I'm going to do it for you. Where you had no relationship, now you are related. It's not that now that you have a relationship. No, you had none, and now you're actually related to him. You're part of his family. He calls you his child. He calls you his son. He calls you his daughter. And the fourth point, just for this one verse, he put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The physical reality of Jesus' death is a essential. Uh, there are a lot of theologies today, a lot of churches in the area that have really gotten soft on the physical, literal death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the spiritual life and reality of the resurrected Christ. The churches in our, within a, well, a couple miles here would take deference to this doctrine. If he wasn't fully God and fully man, he couldn't accomplish what he needed to accomplish for you and me. So he has to physically die as a man, but he's spiritually regenerated as the God-man, fully God, fully man. Well, that's just one verse, and we're just talking about the headlines, not the details of each of those lines. But that's a sampling of what we're going to see as we go through 1 Peter. But let's talk about 1 Peter as a doctrinal foundation the first 12 verses of chapter 1 are very rich in these realities, spiritual realities, and how they apply to the Christian life. I'm going to read the first five verses, but we're just going to look at verse 1 in the time remaining. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 to 5. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. First, let's look at the messenger who's named Peter in chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's the only man named Peter in the New Testament. There are lots of other names that we see repeated again and again. He's the only Peter in the, in the Bible. In fact, I. Howard Marshall posits that he might have been the first person ever named Peter, which makes it even more interesting. From Loeb Classic Series, we read Greek in, the, in what we call extra-biblical literature. Uh, some scholars would argue this is the first Peter that comes on board. Of course, many people will then be named Peter after him. This not-so-veiled name given to him by Jesus was tied to his confession. Now, most of you know Petros and Petra. I won't strain this too much, but the designation of him being Peter in the juxtaposition of Petros and Petra goes back to what's called the confession of Peter. And if you turn to Matthew 16, we'll look at that for just a moment. Matthew 16, how many of you have been to Israel? Godly people. Oh, it is God's will for you to go at least once or twice or three times. Yeah. Um, when you go to Israel, we will take you to this location, and um, it's one of a high, it's a highlight for many folks. Chapter 16, verse 13, is the so-called confession of, that Peter makes at Caesarea Philippi. 
And if you were to go to Israel, you would climb uh, this area in Caesarea Philippi. There's, a, there's also a, a, Phil, a Caesarea by the sea, a tribute to Caesar. This is the Philip Caesar. It's a combination tribute. And when you go up there, it's, it's like everything in Israel, a lot of rocks. But water comes out of this rock. Think of Half Dome, not quite as big as Half Dome, with this hole in it. And water comes out. It's just crystal clear. It's beautiful. And it's a beautiful park area where locals will go up and have a picnic lunch on Shabbat. It's a pretty area. And this is where, where Jesus takes the 12 in this section in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi. He was asking the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was Christ. Now when you go to Caesarea Philippi, you'll see this rock and you'll see this area. And you go, why did Jesus pick this place? Well, number one, it's a memorable spot. But in the backdrop with this large, think of a half-stone mountain, there's an opening that was known as Hades. And the water that comes out of that, the, the ancients were always afraid of water. And they were afraid of the mysteries of the deep, the mysteries of mountains and caves. And so this water that comes out of the spring in Caesarea Philippi was considered the gate of hell to the Greeks. So when he says, you're Peter and upon this rock I'm building my church, what he's really saying is, you're a little rock, I'm the rock I'm building my church upon, and the gates of hell, we might say, behind me here, won't have any effect on this. It won't prevail against this. So it'd be a lesson they would remember well. But importantly to Peter, he's been set apart. Now when you go down to Caesarea by the sea and you go down to Capernaum, you'll see statues that different groups have built of Peter with what on his belt? Keys. Or holding a big key. And they take this passage a little too far. And they think Peter was given this set of keys to the kingdom of heaven when he's actually establishing Peter as this lead apostle and it does come out in the book as well. Of course, you know Peter's going to deny Jesus Christ later upon the eve of his arrest. And then he's going to be restored later after the resurrection, right? So this is the same Peter who we're reading this letter from where Jesus has established him as this lead apostle and he's got these street credentials. So this not-so-veiled name in this first book of Peter, um, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he's the one who's going to lead that group. I think it's one of the most remarkable transformations of a guy who denies, who lies, who curses, and then 49 days later, after the Spirit comes in Acts 1-8, he gives a sermon where 3,000 people respond, and he becomes his leader. I don't think he took a Dale Carnegie course in those 49 days. I don't think he went to some motivational workshop. I don't think the other 11 got with the ting that, hey, guy, you got to buck up, Peter. You got you to get with it, Peter. You're the lead guy. Something happened to him. It's called the reality of the resurrection. 
and the indwelling Spirit of God changed him. And here's a guy who was with Jesus for three years. He saw things no one else got to see but that inner group. He still didn't really believe. But once he trusts Christ, he understands who he is, the Spirit indwells him in Acts 1.8. He's a different guy. And he becomes a leader in that church. And this is the letter that we're reading from that leader. Well, God's intent for Peter, this phrase, not to be too technical, but this is called appositional. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's an appositional phrase. Now, it's saying he's got these spiritual credentials. Now, how often do we read over these intros, whether it's Paul or Peter or James? We read over them so quickly. This little phrase, of Jesus Christ, is reserved for the apostle. There's no evangelist of Jesus Christ. There's no pastor of Jesus Christ. There's no prophet of Jesus Christ. There's no elder of Jesus Christ. There's no gift in the New Testament of Jesus Christ. There's one appositional phrase that goes along with it, one word that goes along with this phrase, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is a big title. Those of you with a military background, this is a five-star general. Ain't many of them, none living. This is a rarity. So for him to use that credential, he's been chosen of Christ as an apostle. He failed him. He was restored He's then redeemed, and the Holy Spirit indwells him, and he is, we might say, only an apostle of Jesus Christ, because that was an appositional phrase that only went to a handful of people. Well, he addresses a very wide audience in verse 1. To those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen. Now, English Bibles play with this word. The word is Parapetimos, parapetimos, and it's translated aliens, exiles, strangers, sojourners, temporary residents, elect exiles. The English language fusses with this, and depending on what Bible you have or if you use the software, you can play with this at some extent. So this word, parapetimos, is this rendering of aliens. Of course, today it's kind of politically incorrect to say an alien, right? Or an illegal resident. But that's the meaning of the word in the New Testament in the first century. Now, note the areas, and let's just say this two ways to look at them, geographically and politically. You can look at these areas on a map of the first century and say what was going on location-wise. You can also look at them politically because they had different issues going on politically at the time. Let me just simply put a, put a juxtaposition in your head. These are places Paul didn't go. That's what's significant. Because most of our New Testament were following Paul's journeys. In the back of your Bible, you have those maps. I know you study those maps in detail, don't you? They're all stuck together. I bet a nickel if you have a real Bible. They're all stuck together back there. There's the first journey, the second, the third missionary journey of Paul. And we take this from the book of Acts. Acts 1 8 is the theological and geographical outline of the book Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the remotest part of the earth. And so now what we're seeing in Peter's writing is there were some areas Paul didn't go. And that's kind of exciting to me, at least, when you read about the New Testament because we're focused so much on Pauline language. But here we're seeing where Peter used, perhaps he was part of that, perhaps others. We don't know. We're not told in the text. But these are areas that Paul did not go according to the New Testament. Now, even though these people are resident aliens is one way of defining the term, They're chosen or elect, again, depending on your New Testament. The adjective is passive. I don't want to bore you too much with grammar, but hang on with me for just a minute. 
passive language of something that happens to you. They didn't choose. He chose. That's what's so important about this doctrine. They were sojourners, they were exiles, but they were objects that God chose for no apparent reason. A reason we'll never know the answer to this side of heaven. It wasn't because you're not as bad a sinner as somebody else. And that's the problem we have horizontally looking at the doctrine of election or predestination. The word chose here is the same word you're going to see in 1 Peter 2.9 where he says you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You're an elect people group. Now we don't like the doctrine of election for a lot of reasons. It sort of grates against us because the way our human brain goes, well if he elects some that means he doesn't elect others and therefore God's unfair. How often have we heard people say, I could never love a God who, fill in the blank. So how can you let uh, people who've never heard die? And this sort of rhetoric go, go, runs downstream. But when you come back to what Scripture is saying about election, it's a passive action to the believer. You're an object of God's grace. Um, you perhaps heard me or someone else tell the story or the illustration before. It's not new. Either Alan Redpath or, or perhaps J. Vernon McGee. I, I've never been able to nail it down because they both used the illustration. But it's, it's the illustration of all of humanity is going to hell. And just envision we're all walking down a highway going to hell. And off in the distance there's an arch. And the front of the arch says, whosoever will. And some people select and they go over to that arch. It says, whosoever will. And they walk through it. The arch is there for all, but all are going to hell. Just some peel off and go through the arch. At some point after they go through the arch, whosoever will... They turn back and look on the back side of the arch. It's, ch- it's chiseled in there, chosen before the foundation of the world. It's the best way for me to understand the doctrine of election. Or to say it another way, the doctrine of election has no application for an unbeliever. It doesn't matter. If I don't know Christ, election doesn't matter. Once I know Christ, I was elect. And those two truths are both taught in the text But the human finite mind and our arrogance of rationalization says, well, I can't believe in that because Scripture does teach we have a free will. So how can those two exist? They can't in our brain. D. Edmund Hebert, who was a um, a commentator, he he was one of these guys that um, was an incredible expositor. He became deaf in uh, the 40s, stone deaf. And so God opened him up in a ministry of writing, and he wrote a series of commentaries that are, are still gold on my shelf. And um, I remember corresponding my first year in, in the ministry. I forget the commentary I was teaching, pastor I was teaching through, but I, I got the phone out. This is back with the phone book before the internet. And I called 411, and I called out in California. I said, do you have a listing for a Dr. Edmund Hebert? And it took a few, you know, called the place where he taught, and finally got a home number in this little woman's voice answered the phone, very frail voice, hello, and I said, this is a strange phone call, I know. My name's Michael Easley, I'm a pastor, and da 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 I've so loved Dr. Hebert's materials, and I would, I would love just to thank him, number one, and ask him a question if he's got some time, maybe in the future, and long pause on the phone. I thought, oh my word, the man's dead. And I just called his wife, grieving widow, you know, I don't know what's going on. And, and the long pause, and she says, well, uh, pastor, I'd love him on the phone, but he's stone deaf. And I 
said, oh, and she said, he's been deaf for many years. And she said, but if you write him, I'm sure he would write you back. And then she said something I'll never forget. He always needs encouragement. And I set my sermon aside, and I typed on my old typewriter with the cartridge. I typed a letter to Dr. Diem and Hebert, put it in the mail that afternoon, and about two weeks later I got back a typed letter with a typewriter. Remember the typewriters where the things were off a little bit? Of course, now those are called fonts. But uh, <coughs> they were old and worn out in that day. But uh, I got on onion-skinned paper, he wrote me this letter and told me his whole story. And I just and we wrote several letters back and forth. I just thanked him for different passages he had had in his commentaries that had helped me. And he'd written articles for theological journals, and I'd read all of them. And you know, I mean, as a writer who sits behind a typewriter, and you don't know in those days the internet wasn't you know around, and so people had to actually write or call to tell somebody thank you. And I began a habit after that of writing authors and thanking them for what they had contributed. But all that background for free, Dr. Hebert writes. Unfortunately, that doctrine, which the human mind cannot wholly comprehend, has been the occasion of much controversy among the saints. The sacred writers do not explain all the problems that cluster around that doctrine, nor do they attempt to harmonize it with that other great truth of Scripture, the revealed conscience, the freedom of human will. Their statements of the two apparently conflicting doctrines balance but they do not explain one another. They teach us by their silence that the proper attitude of the Christian when brought face to face with this mystery is to rest in the Lord, humble and childlike in his confidence and his love and wisdom. I love that. There are certain things that we call them an antinomy. Two truths exist in the same space theologically, but we can't reconcile them. God elects, man has a choice. You're never going to figure that one out. But that arch is helpful to me. Well, in the broader context of Peter, he made it clear that election is what saved people, that we're objects of his grace, and that's part of his purpose. Now, what I find fascinating is he's going to then move into this reminder of their salvation. It's going to be an encouragement to them. You're suffering? Let's start out with the truth. He chose you. Life ain't going the way you wanted? Let me remind you, he chose you. Can we apply it? Your marriage isn't what you wanted it to be? He chose you. Your health is not what you hoped for? He chose you. Your income and what you thought it was going to be at this chapter of life? He chose you. You're having trouble raising children? Or your children are messing up your grandchildren even worse? He chose you. What a way to begin a statement on suffering. He chose you. You had nothing to do with this. You responded by faith in a way I can't even economize. I think it was Augustine that said, God gave you the faith to respond to him. I like that. You and I responded to something that came to us that we did not deserve. Well, addressing these readers, again, as aliens, as exiles, as sojourners, they're scattered around, and he is going to tell them, you are living among others, but you don't belong there. You are living in a place that you do not belong. That becomes the gist of the message. Now, as, as Peter unfolds this letter, he's going to list the circulation of these, these geographic political areas. The letter would have gone around to churches, probably synagogues that became churches. They probably would split 
Because once a synagogue was infected with the gospel, there were those who embraced it and those who rejected it, so they would go next door, metaphorically speaking. And so as the church is expanding from the synagogue model out and they're scattering, this word scattering comes to mind. Uh, Again, these strangers are scattered in a place that's not home for them. Again, Hebert writes, and this is quoting from an ancient writer named Diogenetus. Christians are not distinguished from the rest of mankind by country, speech, or customs. They reside in their respective countries as aliens. They take part in everything as citizens and put up with everything as foreigners. I love that. They take part in everything as citizens but put everything as foreigners. When you go somewhere and it's just not right, when we take people to Israel, there's, there's always someone on the trip that hasn't traveled abroad. And they don't like the food. They don't like the smell. They don't like this or that or the other. I go, you're just, you know, snap out of it, you know. You're in a different country. <laughs> every foreign land is their home, and every home is a foreign land. They find themselves in the flesh, but they don't live according to the flesh. They spend their days on earth, but they hold a citizenship in heaven. We're a scattered alien. We live among others where we do not belong. Well, this is a simple lesson, and if you've heard me ever before, you've heard me say it. This life, at best, is a clean bus station. And that's really what First Peter is about. It's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be what you thought it was going to be. Sure, we're going to be blessed. In Williamson County, most of us should never complain about anything, should we? It's like talking to Johnny Erickson Tata about a health issue. I got a hangnail, Johnny, and it hurts. Let me tell you about mine. She doesn't go there. But we, we live in such an opulent time, uh, and yet we still complain. We still Things don't work the way we want. But there is a sober reminder theologically, don't make earth heaven. Don't work so hard to make this, this place heaven, because it's not. It's fading. It is going away. The address to these scattered aliens is the word diaspereo. Diaspereo. Spero. Spero is the word seed, so to disperse seed. And again, if you go back to the book of Acts, after the persecution hits, what were they supposed to do after the Holy Spirit came, Acts 1-8 and following? Were they supposed to stay in Jerusalem, have a gigantic megachurch? What were they supposed to do? They were supposed to go out, and they didn't. So what does he use? A guy named Stephen. Something unfortunate happens to Stephen. He gets stoned to death. What happens after that? They scatter. You know what that word scatter is? Diaspereo. What man saw as a horrible thing, Stephen being stoned to death, ended up implementing what God intended from the beginning to get them out of Jerusalem. And that was the diaspereo. But as the spereo, the seed went out farther and farther from home, you began to long for home as we all do. I don't care how much of a world traveler you are. Cindy and I have traveled a lot of places we never dreamt. But there's a, after a while, you want to go home. What is it about home that draws us back? Where we came out of the womb, some reason calls us back. I don't get it. I'll never get it. Some of you are born here in Middle Tennessee. You went to UT. You came back here. You're never going anywhere. Good for you. You know, Wear that orange. Go for it, baby. Some of us moved around. But even if you move around, there's something about home. I don't get it. I think there's a theological lesson there. 
We're longing for a home that's not real. Our citizenship's in heaven. And we're longing for a place in heaven. These believers did not anticipate that they did not expect, they didn't envision a future where they were going to live diaspora. They wanted to go home. And Peter's going to write them a letter saying, listen, where you are is important. Yes, you're suffering for Christ's sake, but where you are is significant because you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You're to be obeying Christ. You're to be sharing this message with other people. That's the message that's going to unfold. This life at best is a clean bus station. It's not where you and I belong. Not to be a killjoy. Ecclesiastes, I'm all about enjoying the stuff of life, enjoying what God gave us. But there's that balance of holding it open-handedly, holding it loosely. This life isn't our ultimate life. Are we so earthly-minded we're not heavenly good? And some of us have met people the other way around, right? They're so heavenly-minded they're not earthly good? We all know some folks like that. But I fear more for us, for me, that I'm so horizontally focused I'm not vertically oriented. And that's what I pray for all of us as we go through this book. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.